Hello and welcome to your favorite movie. I'm your host, Evan Kelly. I've always loved movies. I feel they have a unique power that isn't found in other types of media. So I've invited a few of my friends to come and talk about their favorite movies. This isn't a debate. I'm not trying to challenge anyone's rationale or determine the objective greatest movie of all time. My hope with these conversations is simply to begin to reach the heart of what makes film so powerful. My guest today is Sherelle McLafferty. Sherelle is a multi-genre writer from Ohio. Her fiction has been nominated for the prestigious Pushcart and Best Small Fiction Awards. Her poetry and nonfiction have appeared in a variety of literature journals. In addition to writing, Sherelle is also a reader with Split Lip Magazine and a poetry editor at Sundress Publication. She is currently working toward her PhD in rhetoric and writing, with a focus on invention strategies when imagining black futures. If you want to connect with her or discover more of her writing, positions, and commitments, please feel free to visit her website at sherellemclafferty.com. In addition to all these impressive accomplishments, Sherelle has been a good friend of mine for many years. Sherelle's favorite movie is the 2006 quasi-romantic comedy Last Holiday. In Last Holiday, we meet open-hearted retail saleswoman Georgia Bird, portrayed by a luminous Queen Latifah. Georgia always puts everyone else in her life first, while embracing a personal asceticism. She is even too reserved to pursue a romantic relationship with her hunky co-worker, LL Cool J's Sean. Things change for Georgia when a tragic medical diagnosis leaves her with just weeks left to live. She resolves to finally start enjoying her life and splurges on a luxurious vacation to an exclusive French ski resort. Her carefree presence is a breath of fresh air for the crusty elites who frequent the resort, teaching them the importance of value alignment, self-care, and appreciating the beauty around us. Last Holiday failed to recoup its $45 million production budget at the box office and received mixed reviews from critics. However, it may be time for audiences to take a second look. Adapted by Hollywood veterans Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman from an earlier 1950 film production, and directed by Wayne Wong, here is my conversation with Sherelle McLafferty. Sherelle McLafferty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Sherelle, what is your favorite movie? Okay, it's really hard to pick a favorite, but for the sake of conversation, uh, I chose Last Holiday, uh, starring Queen Latifah. What do you love about Last Holiday? Um, I kind of love Last Holiday for the same reasons that I love Devil Wears Parada, in that it's a movie that you think is going to go one way, but then something happens and it kind of ends up being this other thing. So for Last Holiday, you know, you think it's going to be a rom-com? Because they kind of set it up that she's like this dowdy person and she's clearly got an eye on LL Cool J. And then, you know, when she gets this diagnosis that she only has a few weeks to live, it just goes in this completely other direction. And it kind of comes becomes about like really loving your life and indulging yourself because who else mm -hmm. is going to do it? Um, and I just really like that. Yeah, I think of it as a hybrid between a traditional romantic comedy and that second half really becomes more of a fish out of water type of comedy where yeah. she's at this exclusive resort and she's not used to that sort of opulence and she really wins wins the people over there. She almost fits in there better than the people who are normally there. 
Yeah, yeah, to an extent. It's it's almost like contagious. Like she's just sort of taking everything in. She's doing all of the excursions, base jumping and all of that. And it really kind of, everyone gets wrapped up in it because she has such this zest. And of course, they don't know in the beginning that she's sick or she thinks she's sick. But yeah, she kind of is contagious in her joy, which is really interesting. And I think there was a moment in the movie where they could have questioned her more like the movie could have been a lot more you don't belong here they could have questioned her wealth etc because mm-hmm. she's like a black woman in this really fancy place but they don't <laughs> and I thought that was really really cool that no one questions her right to be there I think one of the most satisfying feelings when you're watching a movie or a piece of media is when you can see something really bad getting set up and then they just avert it I feel like yeah. Ted, La- Ted Lasso is like the peak of that. There's this kindness. And that's exactly what I think happens in this movie when she is kind of revealed to not be as wealthy as everyone had assumed. Although she never said she was. That was all on that's them true. for assuming. They, yeah, besides the one obviously villainous character, they still accept her anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say she's met with compassion too. Once people find out the real reason she's here, it's sort of like a bucket list trip. And then Mm -hmm. everyone kind of reflects on themselves about like why they assumed she was a fraud in the first place. Yeah. And she kind of converts the corrupt corporate ladder climber and she converts the senator who's on the take. She really it's almost a transformative quality to being with her character. Mm hmm. By the way, this is just a side note. How funny is it that the senator who is on the take is Giancarlo? Yeah. <laughs> Pre-breaking bad Giancarlo Esposito, yeah. Yeah, like years before. Yeah, and I mean, he's he's good in it, but he <laughs> it, it is definitely not what we think of for him. For sure. So what do you think about that whole narrative is so appealing to you? I think I am a person who also puts themselves last (laughs) Mm -hmm. because that's what you get in that opening montage is you get Georgia kind of putting her head down at her job because it's the right thing to do saving up because it's the right thing to do. She makes this, these delicious meals and she doesn't even eat them. You know, Mm -hmm. she feeds them to her neighbor. Now I'm not so saintly. I mean, I'm not out here. (laughs) I'm not out here feeding, you know, the children. Um, (laughs) But I, I, I really relate to this idea of doing so many things that are time consuming because it's the right thing to do. And then not really, you know, seeing anything for it and then that kind of existential question of like you know why am I putting all my time into this if I could die tomorrow um you know (laughs) and so I think it's sort of uh, a living through her character like ah yes I someday I'm gonna go to a French ski resort and magically (laughs) know how to snowboard or something I I don't know I I think there's something really cathartic about seeing you know a humble person kind of get their moment Yeah. And I I like that you use the word catharsis, right? It's some sort of release of tension that's pent up within us, because as much as we would love to embrace that type of devil-may-care approach to life and, and attempt to live in the moment, we're not movie characters. We have responsibilities, and we can't go to the ski lodge tomorrow, but it's nice to feel like someone who is analogous to us could do it. Mm -hmm. 
So what is most memorable about this movie to you? Most memorable? Okay, so initially when I chose it for your podcast, I was thinking about the quintessential chick flick makeover scene. (laughs) (laughs) I am a sucker for a main character just trying on a bunch of outfits. And when I think about this movie, I think about that sort of pretty woman-esque makeover moment where she's trying on all these beautiful dresses Uh, But again, they turn it on its head because, you know, these women never question her right to be there. But yeah, that's what I was thinking about was like makeover moment uh, is what I thought of when I think of this. But as I was revisiting it, I was also on the rewatch. I was like, wow, it's also kind of capturing this thing from the aughts that is no more, which is kind of that department store cooking demonstration, that sort of Macy's thing that is no more. And I was also thinking about how Food Network used to look before it looks right now. And so it was like Emerald used to be like the person before Bobby Flay. So it was also kind of like this marker of what food TV used to look like. Yeah, yeah. I love that Emerald appears in it. That feels like a very 2006 move. Not in a bad way, but... Yeah, I don't know. I think I'm really enjoying this movie as sort of like a portal back to what the aughts had going on. Um, And a lot of the concerns, because like, also with her department store job, it's like going out of business. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's like a little bit of change happening there. And I was also thinking about, I don't know if... I was just thinking about like this fancy hotel with Chef Didier and I was just like, I don't know if these places really exist anymore. I was just thinking about that. Like if when you look at the ceiling, doesn't it make you want to cry? Like those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. Like, I don't know if that's really how we think about wealth anymore. It's not like these tangible things we think of like succession. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, can you explain maybe why you think that's changed? I guess it's really a difference between if it's supposed to be aspirational versus like not something you want because Mm. i think this movie it's like uh being rich is fancy and fun it would Mm. be like a nice thing to try on for a day but of course we're like much more critical like no everyone here is very evil um yeah they might be being nice to you but um they're very evil people (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and I love how she doesn't let them off the hook, right? She is actively critical of the moral compromises that the other characters make to obtain their wealth and status. People try to push back and they say, you've just been judging us this whole weekend. But I feel like that's kind of the point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although I wonder if kind of uh, her sense of morality, of course, is heightened because she thinks she's dying. And so I think that makes one seek a little bit more morality yeah i I think that's definitely true but i also think it is very organic to her character right she is Mm -hmm. sort of this bastion of probity and she sacrifices she helps others and she's too timid to even go talk to the hottest department store worker of all time ll cool j you know she's (laughs) just she's so attuned to that very spartan sense of what is right and what's wrong and and i'm sure it's intensified by her own health complication but i I think it's there the whole time that's true because we also see her like they make sure to show her at church at some point too so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah a couple of times because she's in the choir and and they have that whole whole scene where she kind of flips out while singing 
Yeah, but it's like appropriate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, they're in I, church. Yeah, I think that's part of the joke is that no, nobody even knows that she's having an existential crisis. Right. I want to loop back to this idea of the film capturing very well, as you said, what's going on in the aughts. Can you speak to a little bit more about why that caught your eye this time? Um, I think there's just a little bit more distance. So um, so one thing that goes on on Black Twitter a lot is we talk about like Queen Latifah's hair always looks amazing. Somebody really cares for her. And there's always this conversation about how she's often kind of slept on, I think, not just as an actress, but as like a leading actress. And she mm-hmm. kind of ruled the early aughts, you know. There was Beauty Shop, there was this, there was Just Right, you know, the remake of Hairspray. But, you know, she was kind of everywhere, um, but she's not really appreciated in the same way that, say, Reese Witherspoon is appreciated mm. for Legally Blonde, which is of the same kind of era. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's that element where, like, a leading rom-com woman could be somebody like Queen Latifah. There's the fashion choices, like I said. There's a little bit of that optimism, which we've already talked about, which I think was a little bit more common in the aughts, whereas I think if this movie were made today, it would be a little bit more critical, even more so. And I think the rich people would be even more evil um, Mm -hmm. than they appeared in this movie. It wouldn't just be the Timothy Hutton character. They'd probably all be sort of more Mm -hmm. bankrupt. For sure. So even just the way it's overall made, how bright it is, like visually, cinematographically, it's it, it just seems like something that's more 2006. And it's just strange to see it in comparison to, say, that Sandra Bullock movie that just came out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the Lost City. Yeah. You know, it's to kind of see like the different approaches to rom-coms. Yeah, I think it just looks different. And I think that's what I mean by like, it's a portal to 2006. Yeah, and I think that's valuable, you know, as much as movies are the story that they're telling, they're also part of the broader story of the culture that produced them. Mm-hmm. So, Sherelle, how many times have you seen Last Holiday and or is there a specific memory you have of watching it? So I would say that I watch Last Holiday probably about once a year. Like I, I'll let it go long enough so that I start to forget it. And then I'll watch it. So mm. I watch it maybe like once a year. I consider it one of my comfort movies. So a lot of times, say I'm, I like get sick or something and I just need to be holed up on the couch. Last Holiday is like one of those chicken soup kind of movies for me. It's right mm. up there with like Legally Blonde. It's right up there with like Sleepover. There's just something that's so easy to digest about it. <laughs> and so I think they're... I think there's a lot of value in a movie that like isn't hard, <laughs> mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and you're not the first person to talk about their movie selection being a comfort movie. Can you expand a little bit on what about it you find comfort in? I find Queen Latifah comforting in general. I think I just have a lot of good memories attached to her as like an actress, but I think the treatment of food is very comforting to me. Yes. So like that very first scene of her in her tiny little kitchen, uh, watching Emerald and cooking alongside him. And you see her with like this delicious hunk of meat on a bed of greens. 
And I mean, it's photograph ready, like literally she takes pictures of it for her little book. And that brought back memories to how I learned to cook a little bit. So I've been cooking since I was a small child, but I learned to cook from watching um, Rachel Ray in the morning. So I also have experienced that like TV teacher moment. And it kind of brings me back to that. And I, I think that sort of sensory thing of cooking too is something that I like to do and I cook a lot at home and I have that feeling of like this is how I show care to the people around me kind of a thing because you see how much she loves watching that neighbor boy um eat her food you know she asks him like what do you think about those greens I mixed them because I know you prefer turnip greens you know and I feel like that is something that's really close to me that's how I engage in food And it's also how others engage in food with me. Like food is care to me. And so much of the movie is around food. I think that's part of the comfort. Yeah, I absolutely agree with being struck by how the movie uses food. Because once she gets to the ski resort, that becomes an important marker that distinguishes her from... No substitutions. Yeah, exactly. They're, you know, they're trying to pick apart the dishes and asking for all these substitutions. And it drives the chef crazy because he, you know, he's a skilled chef and he knows what's going to taste good. And he wants to present that meal. It's like an art to him. And then she just says, I want to try everything. No substitutions. She just wants to enjoy all of that decadence that maybe the others have been a little bit inured to. And so that kind of is what wins her support among the staff of the hotel. For sure. I also think there's that understanding that food can be an experience, especially at like a restaurant, because Mm -hmm. like she orders all that food when the waiter says he never makes the same dish twice. And so that like really entices her. And she's just like, okay, I guess I have to have everything Mm -hmm. because you don't want to like miss out on that experience. What else do you find memorable or notable about the movie? I think just the overall caring for oneself. So also when she gets to that ski resort, we also have multiple scenes of, I guess it's called like a wellness center, the spa. There's like many scenes of like hot rocks and massage and all of that, the hot water. And so I think there's just something relaxing about that. Now, some of it's played for comedy, like when she's getting beat with the, uh, Yeah, whatever little branch that is. (laughs) Yeah, so that's kind of played for comedy a little bit. But there is something just really taking the moment to like care for your body. And I get the sense that her character probably hasn't done any of this before. And even though she's dying or thinks she's dying to really take that time and care for your body, maybe that adds to the comfort question as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we kind of hinted at this before about how maybe we internalize this and reflect it in our own life or don't. But do you feel like you try to embrace that type of self-care or is it maybe more an escapist fantasy? I think spas are interesting in that I think they seem great in theory. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, to be more mindful about taking care of yourself, sure. Like that's something that I try to take on from time to time. But the idea of a stranger just having their hands all over you, (laughs) (laughs) like that's the part where like, okay, well, in actuality, I'd be too tense about this stranger uh, than to actually relax. So how do you take care of yourself and relax? 
Uh, okay, this is like a terrible question to ask a PhD student. <laughs> um, just like a bad question. Um, no, um, this past year, I've gotten really into mangas. So like just reading a bunch of romance mangas, and that's kind of a special treat to me. The art style was really fun. It's not very dense to read. Uh, so like, that's just another way for me to kind of give my eyes a break from a lot of reading. And I've always been like a long bath taker, <laughs> like mm-hmm. once a week, just like once a week, just to like sit and be nothing in the bathtub is always really nice. Is there anything else that you want to highlight about this movie? There's a lot of enjoyment, I think, in watching bad people get embarrassed Yeah, <laughs> as well. The schadenfreude, yeah. Yeah, there's just something really nice about, you know, we've already talked about it, like this underdog getting a moment. And even from when the chef comes out and sits with her first before going to the rich people's table, that's like delectable. Or, you know, that moment in the spa where um, the senator's mistress is being rude to the masseuse and Georgia just snaps over there and is like, you cannot talk to working people this way. Mm -hmm. And so like that is something special because I feel like there's some solidarity there. That's really cool to see. And it kind of mimics the fantasy when she gets her diagnosis and she is trying to talk to her boss and he's just not listening. And she just like murders his cell phone. Yeah, that's a great You know, scene. it's just so satisfying. There's something like really satisfying about some of those moments where people who face zero consequences, you know, get just a little inconvenienced. And I think that that is something that we don't get very often. You know, I think the professional writer class sort of congregates around stories of upper middle class or wealthy people living in New York or Los Angeles. And so I I do enjoy the fact that even though she's in this very wealthy setting, it's because she cashed in literally her entire life savings. And to her core, she is a working class woman from New Orleans. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's cool because uh, my sister used to live in New Orleans. And so um, the scenes that are in New Orleans, I I felt that. I was like, yeah, this is the right vibe. Oh, was it? Okay, yeah. I was wondering about if it is true to New Orleans or not. Yeah, that kind of like house with that big porch. I've seen houses like that in New Orleans. And obviously the the streetcars are are something that's very distinctive that are featured, not not super prominently in the movie, but they're there. So it, it gets Evan's seal of approval. Good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I also think it's interesting that, you know, you know, the, rewatching it and I know the ending, like I know she's not going to die. It's interesting to see how they wrote themselves out of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she gets this major diagnosis. You have three weeks to live, maybe four if you're lucky. And then, you know, at the end it's discovered they have like a really terrible MRI. <laughs> And I like how they even say up front, because the company's trying to cut corners, they're like, yeah, we got this used MRI machine. They're very clear about that. It's just such an interesting, as a writer, I'm really intrigued by that, because uh, as somebody who's seen a lot of movies, I would just consider that just like exposition. Like, ah, they're just establishing that this company is going under or whatever. And then for it to actually pay off, and you're like, no, that was like a major detail. (laughs) I, I think because I 
even I, I, I've watched the movie knowing that she wasn't going to die. I'd never seen it before, but I, I think it's, it's gained enough cultural cachet that you understand that. And so I was very, I was laser focused on that. I was like, Oh, that's it. That's the, <laughs> that's the way they get out of it. It's kind of like Max Keeble's big move, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. when a character goes so far because they think something is ending that they're going to have to lay in that mess that they made. Oh, you know what else is very aughts about this movie? At the end, where they have like little photographs and then like a line or two about what those characters are up to. The same thing happens at the end of Legally Blonde. There's like little pictures of each of the characters you've met and a small snippet about like what happened after the events of the story. Yeah, yeah. I I think that that practice has its roots in some of the 70s filmmaking. I'm thinking American Graffiti and Animal House. But you're right. It definitely was very prominently used in that early to mid 2000s range. Yeah, I can't think of any contemporary movie or movies in the last few years that used it. Well, I actually that might be an interesting point, because nowadays with everything being so sequelized, you don't want to give the update because you might be talking yourself out of a franchise or at least penning yourself in when the next movie comes out. Oh, that would be so strange. A last holiday Netflix series. (laughs) (laughs) Where like, how how would they even do it? They should have to like win the lottery and then be able to take another last. Like what, how do you think they would work it? They would probably have to do it like week by week. So it would be like week one at the after diagnosis, etc. Or so some, just like or maybe, extended. Or maybe they turn it into some sort of drama about medical things failing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's she turned... comes back and sues the doctor. Exactly. <laughs> that would be the HBO route. Yes, for sure, for sure. Or she somehow becomes the owner of the Macy's, although they don't—they never call it Macy's, but I assume that's what it is. You're right, though. That's absolutely what would happen. Her and LL Cool J realized they just liked the idea of each other. They liked each other better when they were on separate floors of the department store. Yeah, she liked it better when she was just buying grills constantly (laughs) to talk to him. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what what that was about. Yeah. (laughs) I I loved that moment, though, because it really I I feel like we don't get all we also don't get a lot of kind of awkward main characters like that or if they do they're always in like very white teen movies who fall Um, down a lot yeah and so i like (laughs) that that it's queen latifah and ll cool j who are like strong attractive talented people who then are playing these still very anxiety ridden characters who cannot bring themselves to talk to each other i know and he like gets up the courage to invite her to that game and i almost wanted that game to come back into play yeah actually when you say that i thought for sure when he gave her the ticket that was like a Chekhov's gun moment like this is gonna pay off and then that's how he they were gonna reunite when she was just gonna show up at the game but they don't do that i wonder if there's like an alternative storyline there Is there anything else that you want to say about Last Holiday? I think it's a really short movie. It's got a lot of charm. And I think most people would probably enjoy it. Like, even if you don't love it, it's nice. Yeah, (laughs) let let me give my own endorsement for it. Because this is a movie that I had not seen until last week. And it's a movie I'd heard of, though. Clearly, I think we know the, the general premise. And I also remember the marketing campaign in 2006. And it leans really heavily 
on the goofy aspects like Queen Latifah on a snowboard was everywhere that was all over TV. Mm -hmm. But there's so much more to this movie and it is really sweet and funny and it has a great heart and I co-sign on it. Yay. How many stars do you give it? I give it uh, on my four star rating system. It is a solid three star movie. Yay. Okay. That makes me happy. Sherelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. Dating back to our first episode discussing Stranger Than Fiction with Derwin, one theme has been abundantly clear. Film is personal. Sherelle's relationship with Last Holiday is no different. I think it's interesting that part of this personal connection for Sherelle is found in a similar connection to food that Joe has in Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Another element that Sherelle connects to is the selflessness of Queen Latifah's Georgia Bird. Sherelle understands what it's like to put others first. When Georgia finally gets to have her grand adventure, this no longer reflects real life. It's better. Wish fulfillment has long been a strength of film. Extravagant, dare I even say implausible scenarios, can uplift us. Sherelle describes her experience watching Last Holiday as cathartic and comforting. Remember that TV is biased toward repetition. The mundane is valued over the extraordinary. Any ostensibly life-changing adventures are limited by the reality that at the end of the episode, everything goes back to normal. Closure, in TV, means cancellation, which is inimical to the medium's profit motive. In all honesty, though, film can fall into this trap as well. As studios chase the latest potential franchise IP, the individual stories become less important than the cinematic universe they serve. I think this is what Corey is driving at in his critique of the MCU. We rarely get catharsis in these movies, because that isn't the point. The point is setting up the next movie that you'll shell out 1949 to see in IMAX. Take, for example, Black Panther. Critics and audiences alike responded to the film's nuanced discourse regarding black liberation. Killmonger and T'Challa represent opposing ideologies, and at the film's climax, the two battle it out to resolve both the narrative and the movie's underlying philosophical debate. I hated the ending of this movie. T'Challa slays Killmonger, and the moral ambiguity of the story is neatly erased. Imagine a world where these characters were not beholden to Disney's hundred-year plan. Picture the two foes locked in heated battle when suddenly the film cuts to black. Neither declared the victor. Think about how much more intellectually honest that would be to force the viewer to sit in that struggle without picking a side. But that can't happen. Black Panther needs to win because he's the hero, and he's still got half a dozen other Disney movies to be in. I think stories are more powerful when they can exist in their own moment in time. What gives a story its meaning is the end. Your favorite movie is produced and edited by me, Evan Kelly. Logo designed by Walker Kelly. Music by Morgan Bennett. Special thanks to Lindsay Kelly. If you like the show, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform. You can also reach the show on Facebook or by emailing favoritemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.